words from Revelation chapter 21 minister to you this morning before we pray. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Lord, we lean into the hope that you've installed in your word, page after page after page, in which you promise, Lord, to make all things new. And Lord, in which you promise that pain and death and mourning and tears will be thought of as former things. And so, Lord, we lean into this future hope and this future glory and count you worthy and capable of getting us there. <laughs> Lord, praise your name for your faithfulness and care for us. Now, Lord, as we open your word, open our hearts to you. Let us hear what you need us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated, and if you'll open in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12, we're going to read verse 25, the last verse of Acts chapter 12, and then all the way into verse 3 of Acts chapter 13. Well, I guess, I guess it had to happen that I've arrived at the place where at least a few times a month I walk into a room and forget why I walked into that room? <laughs> uh, seems like the longer the walk, the more likely that, just, a, just an observation, you know, the longer the walk, the more likely that is to occur. So I, I think the solution is to buy a tiny home. And that way, it's all right there. You know, uh, that's, that is what it is. It's just a part of life. But, you know, sometimes we well, maybe oftentimes we walk into this room and forget why we're here. And what we're doing here this morning, what we're doing here as, as, part, as a part of this local church and sort of why we are members of this local church and contribute to it and serve it, like why are we in this room right now? Well, that's, a, that's an important question to answer from time to time. It's one of those things that we just need to kind of constantly mind and remember that we are indeed prone to entering into this room and forgetting why we are here. And you could say that the big reason why we're here is just to make much of Jesus. We, we've talked about this very often, that you know, we, are, we are a relatively small church with an unbelievably big God. And we're happy to make much of Jesus uh, how, whenever we gather. That's our goal. That's, that's why we're here. You, we could just say that over and over and over again because we need to hear it and be reminded of it. But then you might start asking, okay, well, that's, that's nice. Like, that's good. That's, that's the right thing. How? How do we do that? What are, the, what are the strategies and tactics associated with accomplishing this desire to gather together and make much of Jesus, to do our lives together, to serve one another, to walk with one another in good times and in bad, 
through, through gains and through losses. Like this is, we know to do this. How do we make much of Jesus as a local church? I want to present to you this morning something that has kind of been percolating in my heart and mind for at least a few years regarding this church in particular. I see, I think local churches have uh, sort of general calls that all churches have, and then the Lord does unique things through a unique local church with unique circumstances and unique gifts and unique challenges and so on and so forth. And, you know, sort of uncovering, well, what is the Lord doing with us as a local church has been something I've thought about for quite some time. And this isn't the only answer, but this is perhaps one answer. I believe it is one answer. And that is, I think God is using and will use this local church to build multi-contextual, I'll break all this down into simple speak in a second, multi-contextual, multi-generational leaders. And and the, the, the the, the short version of that is leaders spread thick. And uh, instead of, we, we hear all the time about pastors spread thin. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. What if we had leaders spread thick? What does that look like? Well, I think the Lord might be calling us, sending us down the pathway of developing leaders as a particular unique calling and mission for our local church. And so I, I qualified that by saying a couple of things. Multi-contextual, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean not just pastors, leaders in the workplace, leaders in their homes, leaders in civil government, perhaps, and so on and so forth. Multi-contextual, not just one particular context, but multiple contexts, developing leaders across multiple contexts. And One of the reasons why I think this is something that the Lord is up to in our place is that we have, indeed, a great number of leaders and a great number of contexts as a part of our local church. And we also can identify individuals, men and women, who are maybe on the younger side, but we kind of know, well, you're going to be in a position of leadership in your, in your workplace and so on and so forth. And we can kind of see all of that forming. You know, the streaming thing has certain liabilities with it, and one of them is I can't, I can't get super specific about some sensitive Things, but you know we support a group of men in a hostile country, and what we're doing there, those men are leaders, and some of them are pastors, and some of them are, are something else other than pastors, but these are men that are leaders, and we have for a very long time been not just, not just uh, helping them, but we've really been trying to keep their arms raised up as they serve in that challenging environment. So I think there's a track record to this. And I, I say multi-contextual just because I, I want you to think not just pastors, but, but just, just across the board, leaders. And then I say multi-generational because you need some kind of time frame to measure your success. And so what I'm thinking about is I'm, I'm thinking about leaders in all sorts of different, different generations, but I'm also thinking about something that looks like it's happening right now and will continue to happen, and that is some sort of progressive, God-driven handoff between one generation and another in terms of the keys of the church, in terms of the leadership of this local church. And we can see that, if we're paying attention, we can see that happening in our local church. Uh, I don't know if it was more than a year ago, but at least a year ago, I did a seminar on the millennial generation, and I only let people arrive, come who were not millennials. And, uh, and we talked about you know, there's a lot to be discouraged about with Generation Y and Z, but upon closer inspection, I think the Lord's doing something there, and He's going to have a mighty work amongst these generations 
And I think we're just beginning to see that play out in our local church. And so this idea of building multi-contextual, multi-generational leaders, I think the Lord's doing that. And I'm choosing today to talk about it because our text is Acts chapter 12, 13, uh, Acts chapter 13, really, verses 1 through 3, but we'll read Acts 12, 25 as well. You'll see why I'm thinking about this. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What I'd like to do this morning is just talk about the kind of leaders that God seeks to raise up in any local church context. And we can see this in, in the story of uh, the Antiochian leaders and the Antiochian Christians. And the first point I want you to see is, is that we would, we would expect for God to raise up leaders who serve. Leaders who serve. Now, if you look back, the reason I included 1225, you want, you want to ask yourself, why again? Why again were Barnabas and Saul in Jerusalem? Remember why that is? At the end of Acts chapter 11, the Christians in Antioch, including Barnabas and Saul, were told that a famine would be striking Jerusalem. And so those in Antioch made a plan to raise support and care for those Christians living in Jerusalem who would undergo this famine, who would experience this famine. And they decided to send Barnabas and Saul with the support necessary to care for these Christians in Jerusalem who were going to be without food soon. And so we see at the end of Acts chapter 12 that Barnabas and Saul have completed this act of service. Now, there's something very significant going on, and we've looked at this a little bit in Acts chapter 12, and that is Luke is creating a study of contrasts between two different kinds of authority or two different kinds of kingdoms so you have Herod on the one hand, and then you have the kingdom of Jesus on the other hand. And you see these comparisons moving through Acts chapter 12. And one of them is the comparison of Herodian authority and kingdom authority. And then there's the comparison of Herodian approval. How does Herod get approval? Why does Herod want approval? What is approval about in Herod's kingdom? And then you see Christian approval. And then last week we talked about Herod's army. And, and then we talked about the kingdom of Christ's army, and we said that we like our army better. One thing we haven't entirely discussed is this idea of Herodian leadership versus kingdom leadership. So remember, I need you to kind of put a pin on this over here, that Barnabas and Saul are in Jerusalem to feed Christians. And now I'll just point you back to verse 21 of Acts chapter 12 and say that Herod is another authority figure like Barnabas and Saul, and he is in his own food story. Okay, so this is a little complex, but just keep tracking with me. In, in verse 21 of Acts 12, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man. Why is Herod making that address? 
Well, the previous verse tells us that Herod was withholding food from a nation, from the nations of Tyre and Sidon. And Herod was withholding food to sort of extort adulation, extort praise. So you've got, do you see the contrast? On the one hand, you've got Barnabas and Saul, emissaries of of the Antioch church, going to Jerusalem to preemptively feed the Christians in Jerusalem who haven't even asked for it. And on the other hand, you have Herodian authority that says, I'm going to withhold food so that you tell me I look nice in my robes. And guys, this is very practically, very practically, a study in two drastically different kinds of leadership. On the one hand, you have the Herodian approach to leadership who uses what he has to make much of himself. And on the other hand, you have the Christian form of leadership who gives freely what he has to make much of Jesus. And so one of the things I'd like you to see is, is like, we're going to talk about leadership, and you're like, well, I don't even know if I am a leader. First of all, you probably are, and don't realize it. But, but even if not, I want you to understand something. Why it would be important for us to talk about leadership? Well, because you are a citizen of one of two kingdoms. You are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, or you're a citizen of the kingdom of the world. And what you need to be able to see, at least, is if you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, this is what you should expect from your leaders. And this is what you get from the leaders that Jesus appoints. And that is people who give what they have freely to make much of Christ. So what benefit would it be for you if we raise up leaders? Only this, more people giving of themselves to serve Jesus by serving you. So we want to see this first qualification of leadership established in our passage, and that is leaders who serve, leaders who give freely, and that is to much benefit to the rest of the church. Um, Number two is leaders of Scripture. Leaders of Scripture. Look at Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. What I want you to notice here is that all of the leaders of the Antioch church were men of the word. All of the leaders of the Antioch church were men of the word. They were either prophets or teachers. And probably, the way that the Greek is constructed here, probably they were both. So what we would want you to know now is, as you're thinking about leadership, is You know, it's not wrong at all, at all, to aspire to be a leader. It's a good thing to aspire to be a leader, but I want you to know that leading in a church in any context depends almost exclusively on knowing the Word. If If you want to be a leader, know the Word of God. That's that's where our leaders come from, from people who know the Word of God. I found a wonderful quote from John Calvin this week. He says this, it is a point which ought to be carefully observed that a church cannot safely exist without the ministry of pastors. And that consequently, wherever there is a considerable body of people, a pastor should be appointed over it. No towns shall be destitute of pastors. And then he says this, for neither the light and heat of the sun nor food and drink are so necessary to nourish and sustain the present life as the pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth. What's he saying here? He's saying 
that the central office of the pastor, the central function of the pastor, is a word-driven office. Pastors should be men of the word. And so what he's really saying, when you boil it all down, is this. Neither the light or heat of the sun or food food and drink are so necessary to nourish and sustain the present life as the pastoral office of the word is necessary to preserve the church on earth. So what what Calvin is saying is is you've got to have leaders who are not self-made, but scripture-made. Not self-made, but scripture-made. And I'll touch back on that in a moment. Now, I want you to know, though, Yes, pastors have to be men of the word, and pastors are very important, and we need many pastors who are men of the word. But I want you to understand that the truth is, is that all leaders, all leaders are better leaders when they know the word of God. So you might think, well, I don't know if I'm going to be a church leader, but I probably am at some level a leader in my workplace, for instance. My friends, let me help you to understand. The scripture knowing the scripture, being a man of the word will be of much, much benefit to you in whatever context you lead. Whatever context you lead, the word of God, knowing the word of God, knowing the word of God well will be of much benefit to you. Here's the deal. Knowing the scripture is the not so well-kept secret of great leadership. If you really just looked at the Bible, you would say that all of the best leaders in the Bible were word leaders. A lot of them wrote the word, and the rest of them certainly kept it. So you've got men like David and Moses who had real, practical, functional leadership responsibilities, and these were men of the word. So friends, there's this this other category in the scriptures, and that is sort of these uh, secular showdowns where you have a man like Joseph or a man like Daniel, and he's placed in a marketplace environment. He's placed in a context where he's competing against other potential leaders, other wise men, so to speak. And one of the things you see, you see God favoring Joseph, you see God favoring Daniel, but one of the reasons that God's favoring them is they know and keep the word. So if you just plan on being a leader in your business, If you just plan on being a leader in your workplace, let me assure you that knowing the word is an unfair advantage. Submitting to the word, living according to the word, is in many respects an unfair advantage. Uh, This this is very likely to make you uh, stand out in positive ways. So there's there's a leadership book called Good to Great. It's considered one of the classic books on leadership. And the author of that book identifies a level five leader. So that's the top. That's the, number, that's, the, that's the highest level you can get to. He identifies, he says that all of these companies who have done really well and so on and so forth, all these companies, you know, they, they, they have this thing in common. They have a level five leader in common. And then he goes and defines what a level five leader is. And he says it, level five leader is this, someone who has personal humility and professional will. Personal humility and professional will. Well, friends, If you are a man or a woman of the word, you're going to have lots of humility. And you're going to have lots of clarity about what should be done and what shouldn't be done. Lots of wisdom and so on and so forth. So oftentimes, being a man or a woman of the word will actually help you in significant ways in the marketplace. But it could potentially hurt you. Like sometimes companies decide... 
that punctuality is an expression of white privilege, and suddenly you're not uh, in the running anymore for, for a top position. Because you believe that punctuality is an expression of obeying the Word of God, for instance. So, so it could potentially hurt you, but even if it does, it will certainly help. Listen, this is, this is beautiful. Wouldn't it just be nice to work your job and at the end of your job say, you know, I was able, through God's help, to be a blessing to a bunch of people who reported to me, to a bunch of people who worked for me. And to know that you were in some way, maybe it wasn't even recognized, but you were in some way like a, sort of a little mayor of a little town, and you just did what you could to help these people have good work experiences, that you were compassionate, that you were humble in your dealings with them, you were honest with them, you, you were clear and communicated well, you asked for forgiveness when appropriate, you cared about their relationships, you cared about their home life and so on. Wouldn't it be nice just to, just at the very least, whether or not this gets you promoted or anything else, wouldn't it be nice to just say, I was able to work in a job for however many years and because the Lord helped me to see the word clearly, I was able to care for a lot of people in a unique way. And, and those people are better off, not because I was their boss or because I was their manager, but because the word was my boss. Those people are better off because the word was my boss. So that's the second thing I want you to think about. I think it, it, it very often could get you favored, but even if it does, you'll be serving others. And the best thing is, is that you know, in work, you sometimes wonder, like, what is it all about? And how am I really serving the Lord? And so on and so forth. And friends, the better you know the word, the more obvious the connections will be between what God wants and what you're doing at the time. And you'll be able to worship the Lord more clearly day to day in your, word, in your work the more you know God's word. I also want to talk about just people who don't have formal leadership uh, responsibilities in in their workplace. Just, I just want to just touch on this for a second. Let's, t- I, I was, I've been thinking about my daughters. You might not, you might not know why that is, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about my daughters the last few, few weeks, and I remember when we, when they were like 18 or so, we decided that we were going to send them to a, a Christian worldview kind of thing uh, through R.C. Sproul's college, uh, Reformation Bible College, and at the time, it sort of was like kind of a sacrifice. We weren't really sure if this was right or so on and so forth. Here's why we did that. Because we could see down the tunnel of time and say, well, they, they're pretty awesome. They're really smart. They might actually be leaders in some ways that we can't imagine. But it's also very likely that they're going to be leaders of children, they're our, our grandchildren, And so let's equip these ladies with the knowledge of God's word so that they can do that job better. And boy, I'll tell you, it makes all the difference. So so whatever you think your potential role in leadership is, or whether you don't even know if you are called to be a leader, let me just tell you this. Knowing the word of God is just essential. It's just essential to everything. Back in the 1950s, and it kind of continued on into the probably the modern day, but, but, but certainly 10 years ago or so, this phrase, the self-made man, was such a thing. It was such a thing to celebrate. Look, the self-made man. Look, he's a self-made man. And, and let me tell you something. That is utterly prideful, utterly prideful. 
And you know, God, the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of the ways God opposes a proud culture is he makes a joke of it. And, and I can't help but, but notice something that's happened. You know, the rise of transgenderism in the last few years, it's almost as if God says, look, a self-made man. And let me tell you, let me tell you, the heart behind both of those, both of those self-made men is the exact same heart. The world exists for me. I can do what I want. I have no authority to submit to. My emotions are preeminent. That's, that's the heart behind both of those. Like I live for my glory. But what you see in the word of God is a scripture-made man, not a self-made man. You see someone who over and over again submits to the will of the Lord. So the, the self-made man is just a toxic train wreck. But the one who is made by the Lord is like a stream, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So our goal in building up a multi-contextual, multi-generational leadership thing is, is to build up men and women who know the word of God. You know, in Joshua 1.6, I was looking at this earlier, in Joshua 1.6, the Lord commands Joshua, be strong and courageous. And I thought of this quote that I had read from Jordan Peterson previously, where he says, and if you think tough men are dangerous, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. If you think tough men are dangerous, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. Well, let me, let me rephrase that a little bit. If you think tough leaders are dangerous, strong leaders are dangerous, Wait until you see what weak leaders are capable of. And so God says to Joshua, who's taking over the reins from Moses in Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous. Those are the leaders that the Lord wants. But the Lord knows that the weakest of all leaders is the self-made leader. And so he tells Joshua, there's a way to be strong and courageous. In verse 8, he gives, them, he gives him the plan on how to be strong and courageous. In, in verse 8 of Joshua 1, he says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. And so we are clear about a couple of things. We want leaders who serve, and we want leaders who know the scriptures, because those leaders are scripture-made leaders, strong leaders, and that's what we know we need. Number three, third point. Leaders who are spread thick. Look back at verse one. We'll get to that in a moment. We're, we're familiar with this, this, this concept of leaders uh, spread thin. We, we know that this happens very often when 20% of the people do 80% of the work. So we're very, we're very aware of this notion of a leader spread thin, or of a pastor spread thin. And I was thinking about this a few months ago, and I thought, well, let's, let me take that last word and invert it. So what do I get then? I get leaders spread thick. And this is how my brain works. I start thinking, well, what does that mean? What does leaders spread thick mean? And you might be looking at me and thinking, well, of course you're in favor of thick leaders. Uh, 
But, but no, I, I really, this, this, this was sort of a revolution in my brain when it happened that I started thinking, leaders spread thick, leaders spread thick. What, what am I thinking there? What I'm thinking is, is, is a group of men and women serving together, team-based leadership, groups of people applied thick. <laughs> Not one leader spread thin over one whole thing. So the, the image I have is one leader, and man, he, he's just been like spread thin, like across the bread. And then, like, like, who wants a sandwich like that? And then I have another vision of leaders spread thick. And it's just like, leader, leader, leader. There's like 12 leaders on one piece of bread. Leaders spread thick. And we see that in our text in verse 1. Now, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This was a team. This was a group of men Serving together, linked arms together. Their leadership was spread thick. And friends, that's, that to me is one of the most compelling pieces of this vision for our local church is what if instead of spreading one leader very thin, we just raised up a bunch of, what if the Lord allowed us to fill our single piece of bread with like 12 leaders? And what if those leaders had the privilege what if those leaders had the privilege, for the first time maybe in their entire lives, of really honing in on the one thing? Mostly honing in, because we're all going to have to clean toilets and things like that. But, but what, if, what if every leader on our piece of bread had the privilege of really honing in on the particular thing that God had called them to do above all other things? So that's leadership spread thick, and that's part of this vision. And the last piece is this, leaders who are sent, leaders who are sent. Look at verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So I I thought a lot about this idea of leaders who are sent and this whole idea of and let's just build as many leaders as we can. Let's like focus on that and let's just see what happens. Because one of the things I think is, well, one of the things that could happen is, is that God could send some of those leaders out. God probably would do that. But he never sends any leader that you don't have, of course, right? So, so I'm thinking about these, this, this piece of bread with like all these leaders on it. And God says, I let, you don't need that much on your sandwich. Let me, let me, let me send him over here. There's a piece of bread who needs, who needs that one or this one. And I began thinking about, like, well, what's the kind of operational illustration that we could stick with and walk with and hold and think about and so on and so forth? And I remembered one of the favorite sights I had as I was driving. Remember those days when I would, drive, I would, I would preach here in the morning and then I would drive back to St. Louis and I would preach in the evening? And uh, I remember one, there, there weren't a lot of favorite sights on that road on I-70. I-70 is a weary and dreary road. Potholes for the soul everywhere. There was this one spot, I remember it was on the south side as I was headed, as I was headed east, and it was a tree farm. Tree farms are pretty cool. Now, I'm not talking about Christmas tree farms, because those trees get cut off. <laughs> so that wouldn't work for my illustration. The tree farm that I saw over on my right-hand side as I was driving east was the kind of tree farm where they have nailed the soil conditions and they've just made soil perfect there, and the irrigation is great. And what they do 
is they raise up trees and let those trees take root. Because the only way that a tree can grow is if it takes root. And so, so they would raise up all these trees, and these trees are taking root. But the, the place they're taking root is just this perfect, it's just really ideal soil. And they're being cared for and nurtured. But the whole goal is for that giant tree-moving thing. Isn't that a cool machine that, that grabs the trees? It, the whole goal is one day some customer in Omaha or something says, I need a birch tree. And the tree farm says, oh, I've been growing a birch tree for the last five years. And the roots are strong, and it's been well-nourished. And even if your yard isn't as awesome as our land, this tree's strong enough to be moved, and it'll be okay. Probably, right? Can't, can't guarantee it. And you know, that's what you see in Antioch. You see a group of people who are all taking root in one local church. And the soil conditions of this local church have to be said to be prime. Barnabas and Saul are there for a year. They're serving They're taking root. They're not looking over the horizon constantly thinking, well, only one more year or one more month and I'm I'm out of here. It wasn't like that at all. They were taking root. But then, in these ideal soil conditions, the Lord looks and says, there's two trees I'd like to put over here. And so the Lord does that according to his timing and wisdom. And so our vision of, of leadership building in our local church is to be like a tree farm and to help as many people uh, take root, assuming, you know, because this is the cool thing about a tree farm, not all the trees get sold. And so sometimes you just get nice big birch trees that stay, and that's nice too. This vision of building up leaders in multiple contexts, not simply just in the church, but in the workplace as well, and in, social, in civil government as well, and so on and so forth, let's build up, let's create soil that builds up as many trees as we can, letting them take as take as good a root as possible, and let's just understand that one of the things the Lord will probably do as a part of this is to get that big thing out, that big machine thing, and and uproot some of us and put us in other places. And let us be glad that we have the incredible privilege of being a leadership tree farm. So here's some some practical things that have been going on. And so this is kind of a state of the church address in a way. Again, I want you, when you walk into this room, to know why you're here. And, and, and one of the things that we're doing, one of the things you're doing by being here is you're helping us become a local church tree farm. And so there are three things that are kind of happening right now, and some of them are new and some of them aren't so new, but I don't know if you know about them. So let me just give you a, a heads up. So we talked about leaders who serve. Like we, we want leaders who will really, really serve so one of the things we've been doing is a pastoral residency program where we have a couple men serving, uh, Jay and Max, and they're serving in this pastoral residency program. And kind of one of the things they basically do is sort of look for all of the kind of loose ends. And obviously, with a senior pastor like me, there are a lot of loose ends. And sort of looking and, and, and thinking, how do we serve here? How do we serve these people? And so on and so forth. And so we have two men that are serving in that and with kind of different particulars about their calling and future, but, but nonetheless, there's this thing that we've started, and we're starting small with two men, and we're just saying, okay, let's figure out how to do this in a way that is beneficial both to our local church and to these men. We're also, we talked about leaders knowing the scriptures, and we talked a lot about that. That was the main emphasis of this message, and we said, okay, well, like, what does that look like? And so we've started something called the Theological Leaders Program, and we're starting this week, actually, 
We have about 20 men who are committing to read about 200 pages of theological material every month for 10 months. And so we have got these guys going through this program, and some of them are meeting every week to discuss their readings, and some of them are meeting monthly to discuss their readings. But this is one of the things we're doing to try to build up people who know the word in our local church. And then something we've been doing for quite some time is we, we established this, this group of deacons. And really, we created these group of deacons to sort of walk with, uh, alongside the, the eldership and, and serve in kind of almost like an advisory function and so on and so forth. And, and I see that as this sort of place where we build our understanding of how to serve together as a team. This leadership spread thick thing seems to me to be like, okay, this is that group of people that we're going to figure out how to walk together as a, as a team doing ministry, which is actually pretty complicated. It's not entirely clear a lot of times how, it's not entirely clear which leader goes on which part of the bread, I guess you could say. Or it's not entirely clear to the leader who's spread thin how to be unthin. You know, two double meaning there for sure. So, so we have this idea of okay, here's how we here's how we kind of maybe help build up some leaders who who know uh, how to serve, and here's here's how we build up some leaders who know the scriptures, and here's here's our effort to think through this spread thick concept, and then it kind of all terminates on this final point of leaders who are sent, and then it's just sort of like, well, I don't know, Lord. I don't know how you're, what you're going to do there. And we just approach that with a total open hand, and we pray and we fast and we worship the Lord and say, well, whatever you do there, we trust you. May your will be done. And so, again, when you walk into this room next week, this is one of the reasons why you're here. The Lord's using us as a local church to be, I think, some kind of ideal soil environment for the raising up, the rooting in and raising up of future trees that can be planted, who knows where? Well, let me invite you to participate and think about the Lord's table now. I, I want to read a passage that follows the Lord's initiation of the Lord's table in Luke chapter 22. This is the thing that happened right after Jesus initiated the Lord's table. A dispute also arose among them. This is the disciples who had just been told about the Lord's Supper. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and as the leader, as one who serves. For one who is greater, for who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So today I want to invite you to the table to see the Lord Jesus, who the greatest of all time, of course, becomes the servant to serve you, to serve me. And I I want to ask that as you participate in the Lord's table, you thank Lord Jesus for being the best leader ever. And then you say, Lord, you want to make more leaders like you. So as I participate in this table, would you... Would you accept that prayer that you would do that? Maybe in me, in my local church for sure.
Let me pray for us. Lord, today as we set aside time for participation and communion, I thank you that you are incredibly, incredibly kind and humble, that you condescended, that you became a servant. And Lord, you did not uh, stop being a leader when you became a servant. Those two things are in perfect harmony in your kingdom economy, a servant leader. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that you would, you would give us a heart of gratitude for your kindness, your goodness as leader, but that you would also give us a heart of faith and hope for the building up of additional leaders in our local church. Lord, we pray for those who are here that as they participate in the Lord's table, they will do so with, uh, with care and wisdom. Any discussion of leadership can often lead to just provocations in any heart, any heart of, of jealousy, of envy, of ambition. So please expunge all that from us, Lord. And Lord, we of course pray that, that, that today that those who are in attendance to participate in the Lord's table, God, they would, they would know that you are their God. That they would not just participate in this table as a kind of uh, ritual, but that they would observe this as someone who has put their faith in you to be their Savior and their Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.